He served as a Chicago policeman for more than 32 years and was Chicago's chief of police for four. But Francis O'Neill is probably better known for his efforts in preserving the music of his homeland. Today we're talking about police chief Francis O'Neill, Chicago's savior of Irish music. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Irish immigrants have been a big part of Chicago's development since the city was incorporated in 1837. Digging the Illinois and Michigan Canal, working the steel mills and stockyards, laying railroad track, and working long hours in Chicago's factories, often for meager wages. The Irish were often belittled and denied work and proper housing for being Catholics by the Protestants in Chicago. And yet Chicago would not be the city it is today without its proud Irish population and important historical figures like Francis O'Neill. Daniel Francis O'Neill was born in Trollibane, County Cork, Ireland in 1848, the youngest of seven children. He learned to play the flute at a young age and was an excellent student studying Greek, Latin, and mathematics. Although he considered becoming a teacher, he instead decided to leave Ireland in 1865 when he was just 16 and spent the next four years traveling the world as a sailor. Egypt, Japan, the Hawaiian Islands, Russia, and the West Indies were all part of his travels. During the long voyages, he continued to read and expand his mind, collecting books at foreign ports. After his adventures at sea ended, O'Neill spent some time as a teacher in Missouri before heading to Chicago with his new bride, Anna Rogers, a lovely Irish girl from County Clare, Ireland, at his side. The couple soon settled into the Bridgeport area to the south of downtown. Despite being well-educated, it took O'Neill more than a month on the city streets of Chicago in 1871 to land his first job as an unskilled laborer, quote, trucking dressed hogs and pounding ice, end quote. For this, he was paid $50 a month, a little more than $1,150 in today's money. O'Neill eventually got a job working for the railroad and finally settled on a career with the Chicago Police Department, which he joined on July 12, 1873, a mere six weeks after he became a naturalized citizen. Now, being a Chicago cop in the 1870s was a rough way to make a living. Cops often patrolled large areas of the city alone, on foot, at a time when respect for the law was not high. And men and even young boys were known to carry pistols and had no hesitation in shooting at police. One month into the job, O'Neill was shot by a thief at Clark and Monroe Streets. With a bullet lodged in his back, he was still able to use his wooden baton to disarm the attacker. The next day he was, quote, promoted for conspicuous bravery by the Board of Police and Fire Commissioners from probationer to regular patrolman, end quote. Because of the bullet's proximity to O'Neill's spine, Doctors were unable to operate. He carried that bullet until his death. As it was often the case with families in the late 19th century, the O'Neills experienced great loss due to sickness from epidemics. 
between 1871 and 1885. The young couple lost five of their ten children, one just ten days after his birth, and two on the same day five years later. Those O'Neill children who died so young are all buried at Calvary Cemetery in Evanston, Illinois. Of the five remaining children of Francis and Anna O'Neill, four were daughters and one a son, Rogers. Recognizing that with all the upheaval back in Ireland from the lasting effects of the Great Potato Famine and the scattering of musicians to other countries, melodies that had been shared orally from generation to generation could be lost forever without someone to record them. During his off hours, O'Neill began to seek musicians who had immigrated that could share what they knew. When Irish musicians passed through the city, O'Neill was sure to find them and have them play for him. It has been said that O'Neill himself, in addition to having a great love of Irish music, had an incredible memory for tunes and could play nearly 400 songs that his mother taught him. Because of his skills as a writer, O'Neill was brought into work in the police superintendent's office, helping craft policies and orders for eight years. On April 17, 1894, Chicago's Interocean newspaper ran a column detailing the promotions and a few demotions of police around the city. Francis O'Neill's bump to captain of police at the 8th District was toward the top of the list. He oversaw the Stockyards District for a time. When the announcement was made on April 29, 1901, that Mayor Carter Harrison appointed Francis O'Neill to Superintendent of Police, a.k.a. Chief of Police, cheers broke out among the visitors in the galleries. According to the coverage of the event in the Chicago Tribune, quote, the mayor was anxious to secure a man who not only had a reputation as a police officer, but was a man of good general information and of considerable education, and Captain O'Neill came nearer to filling the requirements than any other man on the force. The idea was to name a man who would be a minister of police, who would be able to not only control and direct the police force, but in cases where the general superintendent had to appear on public occasions as one of the high officers of the city, could make a creditable appearance. Captain O'Neill is not only the best educated man on the force, but also has a good reputation as a policeman, having come up from the position of patrolman. End quote. I think I've made an excellent appointment in Captain O'Neill, Mayor Harrison was quoted as saying, and I also think the people of Chicago will agree with me when he gets hold of the work. O'Neill's effectiveness as the chief of police was highlighted in a May 16, 1901 article in the Chicago Tribune titled, More Thieves Quit City. In it, three pickpockets promised an arresting officer they would leave the city. They were arraigned and fined $10 each, about $331 in today's dollars. Those fines were suspended with the three thieves then escorted to the train station. As they were put on board the nickel plate train to New York, one remarked, quote, This town is too tough a graft now. I don't want any of Chicago in mind while O'Neill is chief of police. Goodbye. End quote. O'Neill had a fair number of detractors as well. Let's be honest, anyone in public office certainly in Chicago does. 
The first few years of the 1900s saw a rise in crime related to gambling around the city, with fingers pointed at O'Neill and the mayor to correct. O'Neill was also responsible for having the head of detectives, a man named Luke Colloran, ousted for some shady activities. Even shady guys have their supporters, so O'Neill took heat for that as well. When Francis O'Neill joined the police force, police badges were smooth and could be easily worn down by sketchy cops so that the public could not read a police officer's badge number. One of the O'Neill innovations was to create a new police badge that incorporated the city seal in the center and with copper numbers brazed on the nickel surface that could be easily read. O'Neill also created the Star Case, the memorial to Chicago police officers who have died in the line of duty. To promote efficiency, Francis O'Neill introduced standardized blank forms, which also saved on stationery. Chief O'Neill was also the first police superintendent in the nation to promote an African-American officer above the rank of patrolman, when he recommended William Childs for the rank of sergeant in April of 1905. This was done under Mayor Carter Henry Harrison IV. Harrison's father, Carter Henry Harrison III, who also served as Chicago mayor, was responsible for putting the first African-American on the Chicago police force 24 years earlier. Mayor Carter Harrison III was later gunned down at his home in 1893, Have a listen to episode 305 for that story. I found a great story in the newspaper from 1901 about William Childs when he was still a patrolman. An unattended horse and delivery wagon belonging to the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company was stopped at 63rd and Kimbark Avenue on the city's south side. The noise of a passing train frightened the horse, causing it to run wildly east down 63rd Street towards street traffic. Patrolman Childs leapt at the head of the horse, grasping its bridle, and was dragged half a block before finally stopping the horse, avoiding any injuries to the horse or any civilians. Pretty cool. William Childs would later make lieutenant in 1912. The July 28, 1901 Chicago Tribune shared the story of Chief O'Neill's discovery of what he called a musical prodigy, claiming that the discovery, quote, has given him more satisfaction than if he had located a score of crooks, end quote. This prodigy was a 17-year-old boy named George West, a helper working in a blacksmith shop. When O'Neill was captain at the stockyards, one of his sergeants told him of a boy who could play incredible music on his violin, especially Irish jigs. O'Neill investigated and was so impressed at the sound the boy created on his beat-up fiddle that he tracked down a second-hand fiddle in the city and presented it to young George West. The paper claimed West was an orphan living with his brother at 4121 South Union Avenue and had never had a lesson. Young George West had been working in a cooper shop in the Stockyards District, and O'Neill reportedly, quote, lived in continual dread lest the boy should lose one of his fingers in a cutting machine and thus ruin his possibilities as a violin player, end quote. O'Neill was relieved when West began working in the blacksmith shop. Quote, I've never heard better playing by one of West's years, and of the many musicians I've heard, few of any age or any training 
who could equal this boy. His specialty is Irish music, the most difficult kind to play, in my opinion. Considering his lack of training, the boy is a marvel, end quote. Chief O'Neill took the boy to a meeting of the Irish Historical Center at the Calumet Theater in South Chicago. In October of that year, Chief O'Neill planned to bring him before a meeting of Irish jig players at the Auditorium Theater. In an early example of your nobody until your death is reported prematurely, in February of 1902, at about 6 p.m., a call came into the Harrison Street Police Station asking if the report of Police Chief Francis O'Neill's assassination had been confirmed. Police began calling other stations for verification, and soon every precinct in the city was notified to report back any information about this topic. Chief O'Neill was missing. At the 50th Street Station at 50th and State Streets, O'Neill's buggy was found in the barn, but the driver, Henry Schmidt, was nowhere to be found. Lieutenant Dennis Conway, part of Chief O'Neill's staff, remembered that the chief had announced his intention of going directly home when he left the office in the middle of the afternoon. It appeared he never arrived. A patrolman in the Brighton Park neighborhood south of downtown knocked on the door of Sergeant James O'Neill, no relation, at 3522 South Washtenaw Avenue to tell him Chief O'Neill was missing. Those concerned breathed a sigh of relief to discover Chief O'Neill had gone to his friend's house in Brighton Park to play Gaelic melodies on his flute while James O'Neill played the violin. Although O'Neill laughed when he first heard about all the hubbub, my word not his, he soon became concerned that his family might hear of all this and be worried. He rushed home. Of course, if ever there was an assassin looking for O'Neill back in the day, he wouldn't have to look far. His address was printed right there in the article, 5448 South Drexel Avenue in the Hyde Park area. Sheesh. As Francis O'Neill had no formal music training, it was Sergeant James O'Neill who helped transpose the music from people around the city. James O'Neill was easily the most notable of all of the musical collaborators, which numbered more than 50 and was invaluable to Frank O'Neill in publishing his first three books, The Music of Ireland, Dance Music of Ireland, and O'Neill's Irish Music, 250 choice selections arranged for piano and violin. Francis O'Neill served on the Chicago Police Force during several significant events in the city's history, including the Chicago City Railway strike, which lasted for three months in 1877, the Haymarket Square labor rally turned riot on May 4, 1886, when O'Neill was working in the office of the general superintendent, the 1894 Pullman strike, and while he was chief of police, the 1903 Iroquois Theater fire, in which 602 people died. O'Neill later wrote of the Iroquois fire, The horrors of that day will never be effaced from the memory of those who took part in the rescue, and to this department, great credit is due for the heroism displayed. On February 13, 1904, tragedy again struck the O'Neill family when Francis and Anna O'Neill's only son, Rogers, died at the age of 18 of encarditis and meningitis. More than 1,000 people attended his funeral mass at St. Thomas the Apostle Church, and students from St. Ignatius College 
Now Loyola University, where Rogers attended, served as Rogers' pallbearers. After serving two two-year terms as chief of police, Francis O'Neill was reappointed by incoming Mayor Dunn for a third term, from which he retired, leaving the Chicago Police Force. O'Neill was 57 years old. Of a family of five sons and five daughters, only four daughters remained. In 1906, after being away from his homeland for 41 years, Francis returned to Ireland for six weeks, playing music and seeing more of the country from which he came. After Francis O'Neill's retirement, the O'Neill family spent time in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, where Francis O'Neill was active in the local church, as well as social and civic affairs of the town. Even 18 years after he left his position on the police force, local newspapers continue to write about him. A June 1923 article in the Chicago Tribune carried word that O'Neill was going blind, having lost sight in one eye with the sight in his other eye dimming. Having amassed one of the largest private collections of Irish literature in the United States, Francis O'Neill donated his library of 1,500 volumes to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana in 1931. After so much heartbreak and loss in the life of Daniel Francis O'Neill, there was one more to come when his beloved wife Anna passed away in May of 1934 at the age of 84. Chief O'Neill followed her less than two years later, on January 28, 1936. He was 87 years old. O'Neill's funeral was held at St. Thomas Apostle Church on 55th Street, where he had been a parishioner for 40 years. He is buried along with his son Rogers, his wife Anna, and the couple's deceased daughters and grandchildren in the O'Neill Mausoleum at Mount Olivet Cemetery on 111th Street. In his lifetime, O'Neill gathered more than 3,600 pieces from oral and printed sources at his own expense, compiling them into eight books he wrote and published over two decades. Making these books universally available is why Irish musicians today have the wealth of musical history from which to draw. In the year 2000, the Captain Francis O'Neill Memorial Company unveiled the life-size monument of Chief O'Neill playing a flute overlooking the Trolloban Valley by a commemorative wall near the O'Neill family homestead in Trolloban, County Cork, in Ireland. When O'Neill died, he left behind an unpublished manuscript of his memoirs titled Sketchy Recollections of an Eventful Life in Chicago that he wrote in Chicago in 1931 when he was 83 years old. Mary Lesh, O'Neill's great-granddaughter, along with Ellen Skerritt, later edited O'Neill's unpublished memoirs and had it published in 2008, 72 years after his passing. It is an amazing look at Chicago during the turn of the century by a guy who was in the middle of it all. I will have a link to purchase the book in the show's notes. In 2012, a musical play opened in Chicago called Music Mad, How Chief O'Neill Saved the Soul of Ireland, performed at the well-regarded Chief O'Neill's Bar in the Avondale neighborhood of Chicago. 
As Nicholas Carolan, director of the Irish Traditional Music Archive in Dublin, Ireland, shared in Chief O'Neill's sketchy recollections of an eventful life in Chicago, quote, O'Neill's was the greatest individual influence on the evolution of Irish traditional dance music in the 20th century. His contribution has become a permanent, although constantly changing, component of the bloodstream of the music, and it is one that is accordingly increasing in effect in the new century, rather than disappearing with the passage of time. listening to today's episode about Chief O'Neill, the savior of Irish music. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. I have a brief list of links to books as well as other related items in the show's notes as well as on the Chicago History Podcast website at chicagohistorypod.com if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. If you don't already, please follow the show on social media as I update Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram throughout the week with articles, pictures, and behind-the-scenes tidbits to enhance the episodes. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thank you, John. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or by email at angeleyesart.com jks at gmail.com I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.